Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. Last year, the U.S. Department of Transportation received more complaints from passengers about airlines than ever. And you'll never guess the main passenger complaint, the unwillingness of many airlines to issue full refunds to folks whose flights were canceled. Scott McCartney, the travel editor for the Wall Street Journal, joins me to discuss the real complaint numbers, the offending airlines, and at least one airline's surprising showing. In fact, we're talking about the best and worst airlines. One of our regulars on this show, as well as on our PBS show, The Travel Detective, we call him the Honorable Travel Editor of the Wall Street Journal, <laughs> Scott McCartney. How are you, sir? I'm fine. How are you, Peter? Good. I always want to introduce you like we're going into a trial. That's it. You know. uh, <laughs> I'll, be the, I'll be the lawyer with the cat face on. 
Okay. Oh yeah. Wasn't that great on the, on the zoom call? Oh yeah, my God. Yeah, that was the yeah, best. That yeah. was the best. <laughs> if we only had more trials like that, I mean, we'd have faster justice, something tells me, you know, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. bottom line is last year, 2020, I want, it was almost a record year for the number of complaints received by the office of consumer affairs, by the department of transportation in DC. And that, and, and what's interesting was if you started to break out those complaints, you found a pattern, didn't you? Yeah, well, uh, complaints for, for refunds, for fares, um, for reservations, but primarily refunds uh, were just off the charts. Uh, and, um, I mean, we in 2020, uh, there were 83, more than 83,000 complaints about refund problems. That was up 5,366% um, compared to 2019. Yeah, that's a uh, pattern. That's a it, pattern. Yeah, it, it was a it was a clear pattern, and you know what's really infuriating about all this is that there were there were lots of airlines that, who knew they were breaking the rules and continued to break the rules, and um, and travelers rightfully complained about it, and um, unfortunately they didn't get a whole lot of, um, of assistance from um, the Department of Transportation, which is supposed to help. Okay, so there's that brings up my next point. It's an existing on the do- the docket federal rule from the Department of Transportation. And for those of you who haven't talked, haven't heard me say it before, I'll just say it again so that Scott and I can talk about it again. But you've heard me say it before. The rule is really quite simple. If an airline cancels your flight, and this is, can be any airline that flies to, from, or within the United States, which includes foreign carriers, if they cancel your flight, not if you cancel your flight, but if they cancel your flight, you're entitled to a full refund back to your original form of payment, even if you had purchased a non-refundable ticket. And so what Scott's talking about is these guys violated a rule that was, that's been in existence for quite some time. The problem is, faced with that and all of those complaints, most of them, I would guess, are well-documented and easily supported. The U.S. Department of Transportation chose not to take an enforcement action, which was boggling my mind. Yeah, the, and the, the documentation can be difficult. I mean, we, people need to show that the airline actually canceled the flight. Um, and so there may be, you know, in in those complaints, there may be lots of people who say, uh, you know, I couldn't go because of the pandemic and they wouldn't give me my money back. Um, well, that was but, different, yeah. Yeah, that's different. Um, but, the, but the basic premise that, uh, look, airlines cancel thousands and thousands and thousands of flights. So, so lots of refunds were coming, and uh, a lot of them said, uh, we're just not going to give refunds. Um, we're going to give vouchers, and it's because of the pandemic. And the Department of Transportation actually warned them and said, uh, you don't get a pass for the pandemic. Nobody got a pass after 9-11. Nobody gets a pass from this rule um, for hurricanes or, or anything else. And, you know, it's really a basic fairness question. If you... If you buy something from a store and the store says, we're not going to be able to deliver this, you ought to get a refund, right? And it's the same thing. You book a flight with an airline and the airline's not going to uh, deliver that flight, you ought to be able to get a refund. And, of course, what compounded things was when people paid either with a check or a debit card, it made it even messier. But if you paid with a credit card, then you would think you'd have even additional rights because you contracted for a service that you didn't receive, and under federal credit law, you should be able to get an, a credit issued to your account by the credit card company that could easily investigate. 
that didn't work out very well either. No, it, it didn't, because the credit cards would contact the merchant, as they do in any case, in, the, in this case, the airline, and the airline says that person's not entitled to a refund. And so the credit card says, uh, hey, uh, airline says you got a voucher, you're not entitled to a refund. Um, the credit card companies didn't want to adjudicate this this dispute. Um, it really needed to be the federal agency that, that enforces the, the rule. Um, but it, it, it just didn't happen. And, uh, you know, the complaints were were a big part of the story of, of 2020 in terms of um, airline performance. Uh, but, you know, there were other ways they fell down on the job, too. <laughs> yeah, I get it. All right, well, having said all that and looking at the numbers that you're looking at, now it's time to figure out who performed the best in 2020. Yeah, so we do an annual scorecard and, uh, and look at seven different um, uh, operational um, areas, complaints being uh, one of them. Uh, and overall, um, it was interesting. I, I, I hesitated a bit going into this, wondering if the pandemic would be, you know, uh, it would be a, a fair year to measure airline performance in it. And it turned out to be, it also turned out to be a year when, you know, the airlines that historically have done well in the survey, uh, in, the, in the ranking, um, continued to do well. And the ones that, that operated not as well in normal years uh, didn't do as well in the pandemic. Um, so the overall winner was, was Southwest. Um, Edge passed Delta. Delta had been number one for three years in a row. Um, but Southwest uh, really did some things to improve their operation, particularly in baggage, which had been a problem for them. And, and they brought some technology to the baggage issue, and it made a big difference and helped put them uh, back at number one. All right, so they're number one. Shall we go down the list? Yeah, so Delta was number two. Um, and, and Delta had some issues. Um, they, they had a bunch of long delays of flights. Um, last winter uh, that um, that knocked them down some. Um, Alaska was number three, uh, and I think I think you may find this one a surprise. Uh, Spirit is is number four. Um, Spirit has had a, for the last couple of years a big effort to really improve their operation, and, and they've gone from the bottom of our our ranking um, to the middle of the pack now. Uh, and Allegiant was was right there with them, and Frontier, the, the three low-cost guys, uh, really, um, you know, kind of in the middle of the pack, um, which I think is really interesting. At, at the bottom, um, JetBlue and United uh, were, were tied this year, uh, but American was even worse. And, uh, and American has been at the bottom for 12 of the last 13 years that we've or Whoa. a bottom or next to last in 12 of the last 13 years. Um, and the compelling reason, if there is one, for the reason why they are in the basement? Uh, you know, I, <laughs> there's an, there's, uh, they have a reason every year why it was a tough year, um, but I think the reality of airline operations is that um, if, you, if you spend the money and make it a priority, uh, you can run a good operation. That's what Delta did. Delta used to not not do particularly well, and Delta decided, you know what? Our customers want us to be reliable. We're going to do what it takes to get reliable. And American hasn't made that commitment yet. Um, and, and you know, it's not just money. 
Um, it's it's people, it's time, it's how you go about uh, the operation, it's um, how you maintain your airplanes, uh, how you treat. I mean, one example, um, overbooking and bumping. You would think that the last thing in the world when, the, you know, their flight's going out with six people on them, the last thing in the world would would happen in a pandemic is somebody would get bumped from a flight. And, and yet American bumped thousands of people um, last year. And in fact, American accounted for 77% of all the passengers involuntarily bumped from flights uh, wow. in, in the last year. And, and that's simply a policy thing. Oh, look, Delta overbooked flights, too. They had five people in the entire year uh, that they involuntarily denied boarding to. Um, now, they had a lot of volunteers. A lot of people gave up their seats voluntarily, but that's because they offered them really good incentives, um, gift yeah. cards and, and things that were of value. <laughs> exactly. Americans didn't do that. They just said, tough luck, you can't get on the airplane. To talk about the dreaded middle seat, uh, <laughs> pre-pandemic, of course, nobody ever wanted to get stuck in one, and nobody wanted to sit next to anybody who was in the middle seat. Uh, so this is not exactly a news bulletin that, so many people are thrilled that Delta, as a result of the pandemic, made a decision when they weren't flying that many people anyway to uh, make it a policy of not booking the middle seat on their flights. Um, I mean, how could you not love that? Now, from an epidemiological perspective or a public health perspective, you could argue that it doesn't make much of a difference because the separation between you in the middle in the aisle seat and the other guy in the window seat is only 24 inches anyway. It's not six feet. And, of course, the distance between you and the guy behind you who just sneezed is about 14 inches. So it's not that. But the optics are great. And Delta decided to make a, uh, a calculated risk here in, uh, in basically closing off a lot of the, of the available revenue seats that they would have on their plane. So, Mr. McCartney, has it worked? Well, um, it, it has not worked financially yet. Um, and it, it, I think it's pretty. It's it's very clear that it has been a very expensive policy for Delta. Um, one way to look at it is uh, Delta um, in the last six months of 2019, Delta was the the most profitable airline in the country. Um, in the last six months of 2020, Delta had the biggest losses of of any airline. Um, and Delta lost as much money as United and Southwest did combined. Um, so it hasn't worked financially. Now, what Delta says is, hey, essentially they're saying we're not interested in winning the pandemic. We're interested in winning the recovery. Um, so Delta thinks that they are winning confidence and winning loyalty uh, from travelers, from the very few business travelers who have to fly now. Uh, but more importantly, all the people who aren't flying right now. Um, and that people will appreciate that Delta stood apart from other airlines and um, was trying to do the right thing and and keep people safer or at least give them more confidence. Um, so it, in a sense, we'll see. Um, what I think is fascinating through through the pandemic is that, I mean, what what's also clear in this is what you and I have known for <laughs> for decades. Um, that air travelers will flock to the lowest fare almost no matter what. And in this case, no matter what means in a pandemic. Um, so I, I looked route by route and, and found cases where JetBlue, um, uh, Spirit, for example, 
had slashed fares. Uh, Spirit in, uh, between Atlanta and Chicago, Spirit had an average fare of about $36 each way. Um, you know, just the in, incredibly low fares. And, and Atlanta, Chicago is a good route to look at because you've, you've got hubs on either end for American United Delta. It's a very competitive market. And, and yet here's – so Delta's losing market share and Spirit is taking away market share up to 20% of that market um, in the pandemic with, with low fares. Um, and so for some people, uh, the, the cheap price trumps, um, you know, being safe and, and um, having the extra comfort and, and, uh, of an empty middle seat. Now, Delta has announced they're going to continue doing this, I guess, through April. Yeah. What's going to stop them from saying, okay, we're going to do it from now on? I, I can't see them doing it forever. Can you? No, I don't think so. And I think the end of April may be it because I think they can't afford to do it when summer comes. Um, what what they're hoping is that with with vaccination, um, with with the number of cases declining, uh, that that by the time you get to April, they'll be at a point where they can say, you know what, I think uh, it, it's it's going to be OK to start filling the middle seat. But um you know, the last six months of, of 2020, Delta filled only 41% of its seats. Um, and, it, you know, nobody can make money filling 41%. American filled 61% of its seats, and they can't, can't make money doing that. But, um, you know, essentially Delta has has blocked off 30% of its capacity, and and they can't afford to keep doing that going into summer. Unless they triple the fares. Well, I say triple the fares, but that's always difficult, and that's what I think the spirit lesson shows you. You triple the fares, and people will go to other airlines. Uh, and so that uh, that uh, it, it, it's it's also clear during the pandemic that Delta has been able to charge higher fares than than other guys, but the but the higher fare does not make up for all the lost passengers. I gotcha. So. If you want that block middle seat on Delta, you got until April 30th, just about. <laughs> and and after that, after that, you're basically sitting between the two sumo wrestlers. Or, or you you can buy another ticket. Um, you, you know, Delta and other airlines do let you uh, buy the middle seat, but it, it now costs. Uh, it's the same price as whatever ticket you're buying. Uh, so it's a it's a very expensive. Um, <laughs> comfort thing uh if you really want space um you're better off buying a first class seat and and there are you know there are discounts and deals on first class seats um it's not always outrageously expensive and something that i think you know people who who can do it and are concerned about comfort and space and safety they really should do it My thanks to Scott. Now consider this. The nonstop airfare between New York and Los Angeles is still averaging about $92. Miami to the West Coast has been as low as $31. Absurd, unreal, but true. Paul Brady from Travel and Leisure talks to me about how long this real buyer's market is actually going to last and some unexpected places where people might be going. Everybody's got this one question on their mind. Um... Among others, but one in particular, of course, is not whether we're going to travel, not where we're going to travel, not even if we're going to travel, but how. And then, of course, all the other things come in like where and when and everything else. 
and uh, joining us now, editor-at-large for Travel and Leisure magazine, Paul Brady, to talk about some other choices you might want to make, as, since you're going to be getting choices in the next couple of weeks, as we see an intersection of the vaccine and widespread, reliable, rapid-response testing, and of course, the pent-up demand to travel. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. So let's talk about why you think 2021 may be the best time to take a safari. Yeah. Hey, if we're thinking about travel and we're thinking about getting back out there, why not think big? And so uh, in our recent issue, yes, indeed, I wrote a story about why this year is the year to take a safari, especially if you've been dreaming about it for many, many years. And the reason being? Well, there's actually a couple factors at play. Number one, and I think really important just to get out there, is it's all outdoors. I mean, most of these camps have outdoor seating. You're out in open-air vehicles. You're exploring the wilderness in Africa, and you're chasing wildlife and getting those dream pictures for your social media accounts, right? So first and foremost, (laughs) you know, it's safe because you're outside. Um, And then secondly, I think... Africa and many of the countries in Africa that are safari destinations have actually done an incredible job at containing the pandemic. So very low case counts, uh, haven't suffered in the same way that other parts of the world have. uh, So you have that working to your advantage as well uh, in terms of safety. And last thing to consider is that a lot of folks aren't going on safari. And that means, Peter, as you know, great deals and great availability, especially at some of the best safari camps in Africa, uh, all throughout this year. I mean, it has turned into, through nobody's uh, nobody's great grand plan, into a buyer's market. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, for some of the top camps, I'm thinking of properties from wilderness safaris, Great Plains, Singita, you know, really high-end operators. Oftentimes, you know, before the pandemic, uh, you were looking at booking two years out to even get a, a tent or, or a camp site at one of these great lodges. Now that booking window has gotten a lot shorter. And so as we're all looking for flexibility and making our travel plans, uh, you know, people that are considering a safari really have the opportunity to pick and choose. As you said, it is a buyer's market. It definitely is. And now is there one particular country over another, Tanzania, Kenya, Namibia, South Africa, that you think is going to be a better deal? Kenya and Tanzania, both great options. Uh, we're also hearing a lot about uh, Zambia uh, having some great properties and, and a welcoming uh, sort of policies in terms of getting into the country, getting out of the country and testing and that sort of thing. Uh, also really popular are the gorilla safaris uh, in Uganda and Rwanda, and, and folks are really interested in those. Our readers especially are always asking, how, what's the best camp? How can I see uh, you know, gorillas and, and other primates in those destinations? So a lot of choices, really. Although I will tell everybody a caution, as wonderful as those tours are in Rwanda, and I've done them, uh, and they're amazing, uh, they're not inexpensive even if it's discounted certainly true. I think, you know, for all the advantages that a safari presents this year, uh, you still have to spend uh, spend a decent amount to have a great time. You do. But I tell you, it's, it's one of those life-changing moments when you're 9,000 feet up in Rwanda and it's just you and a silverback uh, and you stand very still. <laughs> and, uh, and it's pretty amazing. And for me, that's worth it, especially if the numbers of incoming visitors are, by you know, by current standards, down. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's important to consider, too, that, that many of these destinations rely on visitors to fund conservation projects. And, and without the flow of visitors that they're accustomed to of the past year, um, as we've seen in so many parts of the travel industry and in so many parts of the world, uh, you know, it's been a, a long year of tough choices of what to invest in. And so uh, a lot of the travelers that I spoke to for my piece actually talked about wanting to get over to Africa and be a part of not just a great vacation and, and a life-changing sort of safari trip, but also a, a part of the conservation efforts underway to protect in, environments, ecosystems, and animal life uh, in many destinations across Africa. Exactly. So, you know, timing is everything. This probably won't be the case next year. It'll be full force next year. But right now, you know, the early bird does get the worm on this one on on a on a better on a better price for one of those great priceless experiences. Now, speaking of that, as the cruise industry starts to emerge, and we've all noticed how they continue to delay their their restart date for sailings, many of the cruise lines have pushed it back till mid July or August, but they will go. Uh, you say that when they do go. Uh, their itineraries are going to be changed radically to the point where they're short. The, the cruises will be shorter. Yeah, so this is one of the interesting trends uh, that we've seen uh, over the past year. I, I think before the pandemic, many of the cruise lines, especially at the higher end, uh, were focused on two, even three-week cruises, which, let's face it, for a lot of us, you know, it's kind of tricky to commit to a two- or three-week uh, vacation. Uh, and so as, as the lines come out of their pause, uh, we're seeing a lot of four, five, six night trips, which really gives, I think, travelers a great bang for their buck. Uh, not only do you get that uh, terrific cruise experience, but you're able to sort of get in and get out uh, and make it possible with just a week off of work. And you can do it. Um, and the other reason that they're going shorter is because as they begin to emerge, they want to be able to control their environment, not just on the ship, but at the ports where they're going to be allowed to go. One of the ports where they're automatically allowed to go, at least in the Caribbean, is to their private islands that most of the big cruise lines happen to own, whether it's whether it's Royal Caribbean or Carnival or MSC or Norwegian. They all have their own self-contained private islands, which seems in, in a bubble mentality of cruising, like maybe the right way to go. Yeah, I think a lot of the cruise lines are exploring the, the bubble concept. And uh, one of the things we're keeping an eye on is whether or not the lines will require vaccination. And I think the jury's still out a little bit on that. Uh, but certainly they can control their environment both on the ship and on the private islands, as you mentioned. And even uh, on their shore excursions, those trips you take into the port, many cruise lines are saying, you know, you'll stick with us, stick with your pod, and keep everything contained and controlled. And, and to me, it seems like a great way to enhance the safety and give people the confidence they need to, to get back aboard these ships. And you're not going to have a choice anyway. You, you're not going to be able to, uh, to, you know, to freelance a, a shore excursion and go rogue walking around Naples. You know, it's, they're just not going to let you do it. You will be escorted by a member of the crew. The buses will not be loaded. They'll be at 50% capacity. And you'll be taken to a pre-vetted, pre-approved location where they think they can control the environment so you can have a great experience and minimize your your exposure. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch. And and I think if the cruise lines are able to to get this right and do it well, uh, 
you know, it's going to go suddenly from, you know, you can't cruise at all to maybe cruising is one of the safest ways to travel because we know everything's vetted, everything's tested, everybody's tested, and many, if not all, people aboard are, are vaccinated. So well, that's, could, that's be, an the key. could yeah. be an interesting pivot. No, that's going to be the key. Uh, we've already seen that happen with Royal Caribbean, starting an all-vaccinated cruise in Israel. They've got a ship sailing over there now. You see other cruise lines like Norwegian make it a rule that immediately all crew members and officers have to be vaccinated. And they're going to make that rule for passengers. That's coming next. It's inevitable. So if you have a cruise in which all the crew is vaccinated, all the officers are vaccinated, and all the passengers are vaccinated, wow, you may be on the safest thing going. Sounds okay to me. (laughs) My thanks to Paul. So if you're wondering whether cruise ships will be sailing to Alaska this summer, you first need to understand something called the Passenger Vessel Service Act of 1886 and how a 135-year-old law may not be your best friend. So who knows the answer and can explain it all? It's Dr. Salvatore Mercagliano, history professor, and he walks me through this old piece of legislation and what it really means to you. If you've been following the show, you know we've been talking about the cruise industry for a while, uh, how they've essentially been idled, first by the pandemic and then by individual government regulations. Uh, Even though the CDC has lifted the no-sale order, they did it conditionally. There are about 75 different things that cruise lines have to do on every one of their ships to be able to get the full green light, which is why so many of the cruise lines have been, you know, sort of like staggering and delaying their resumption sale dates. But then there's something else in the mix that happened. Uh, Last year, Canada closed its ports to U.S. uh, cruise ships, and they were supposed to reopen or at least make a decision to reopen on February 21st. So last year, there was no summer Alaska cruise uh, season or no New England fall foliage cruise season. And this year, way before uh, February 21st, the, the Canadians said, you know what, we're closing them all the way through February of 2022. So does that mean your Alaska cruise is shut out again? It is. It does mean that. And for something called the Jones Act or the Passenger Vessel Act, and most people don't know what that means, but in terms of of either of those acts, uh, in many cases it requires any ship that's not registered in the U.S., which, by the way, is most ships, uh, they they cannot sail between two U.S. ports unless they stop in a foreign port first. We need a little context here, a little perspective. So we're reaching out to our next guest, Sal Mercagliano, who's the Associate Professor of History at Campbell University and basically the expert in uh, maritime industry policy. Professor, thanks for joining us. Happy to join you. So let's talk about two things. The Passenger Vessel Act, which goes back to, it's actually the Passenger Vessel Service Act, which goes back to 1886. And that's really the one that started about the stopping at foreign ports, right? That is correct. That's what requires you to have a, uh, uh, an intermediary port in an international country. And of course, what that means for the, for the Alaskan cruise season is get out the maps. How do, you, how do you go between the United States and Alaska? You have to stop at a foreign port. And the foreign port is Canada. Could be a number of, of ports in Canada. Could be Vancouver, could be Prince Rupert. Uh, but the point is, uh, if the Canadians have closed the ports, you're now in violation of that act. You can't sail between two U.S. ports. And that's really where the cruise lines are kind of stuck right now, right? That is correct. And this law, as you mentioned, dates all the way back to 1886. This was a period of time when the U.S. Merchant Marine was in decline. There was a big concern 
about foreign merchant marines coming in and dominating our trade, uh, it's right at around the same time that the progressives are reforming laws. You have the Interstate Commerce Act that's passed right around that time to prevent monopolies and huge co- corporations taking over. So this is where you see the Passenger Vessel Service Act come in. And of course, it was designed to protect the American merchant marine who probably killed it, <laughs> when you think about it, uh, because, because you know, not a lot of, of ships are like stevedoring these days. No, it's uh, obviously the Passenger Vessel Service Act and Jones Act has had an issue. There are a lot of issues. I'm not one who blames it solely on the Jones Act or the Passenger Vessel Service Act. There's a lot of issues that go into maritime trade, the proliferation of new flags and tonnages. Uh, The interstate highway system really removes the necessity to move passengers by vessels. But it also protects, for example, the ferry industry in the United States. I mean, the reason you ride on a U.S. flag ferry from New York, from Manhattan to Staten Island, is because of the Passenger Vessel Service Act. Right. You don't have to stop an Ensenada on the way, <laughs> which would be really going out of your way. Uh, which would be nice because I've been to Staten Island. <laughs> okay, I'm glad you said that. Let's talk about let's talk about the Jones Act, though. How does that differ from the Passenger Vessel Service Act? So the Jones Act actually reaffirms even an older law than that, the 1817 law, which which deals with cargo. Uh, the pa- Jones Act deals with cargo. The Passenger Vessel Service Act deals with people. And basically it's the same exact issue there, that you have to be an American-built, American-owned, American-crewed, and American-flagged vessel. And, and the reason for this is very simple. The concept was for the United States to be a maritime power, you had to have both a Navy and a commercial element to it. Right now, the U.S. Navy is number one in the world. The U.S. Merchant Marine is 21st in the world. China is second in the world in in its Navy and second in the world in its Merchant Marine. And the question becomes, which one is the better sea power? If if it's terms to hard power, application of military power, it's the Navy's. It's the U.S. If it's soft power, you can make the argument the Chinese are. But this is one of the reasons why the U.S. has such a protectionist law, because the U.S., unlike other countries, has a global presence overseas, has military presence, and therefore they want to keep a certain element of the American merchant marine domestic. So this brings up a little bit of history here. Uh, when we had some you know, major weather issues in the Caribbean, uh, one of the presidential uh, administrations issued a waiver on the Jones Act to allow cruise ships to deliver supplies from a U.S. port to another U.S. port. Uh, so they issued a waiver in an emergency situation. But in this situation, where we've got a, a pandemic, where we have a Canadian government basically saying, we're not opening up till February of 2022, what are the odds of the U.S. government issuing a waiver on the Passenger Vessel Service Act to allow U.S.-based cruise ships to sail to Alaska this summer. Well, you're exactly right, Peter. In times of extremists, uh, the government has the ability to issue waivers, and uh, Alaska's congressman has just put forth a bill proposing that, to waive the Passenger Vessel Service Act. I I would argue there's a couple of ways around this which don't involve a waiver, and there's there's a couple of things that can be done. Uh, One of the ones, first off, is if you violate the Passenger Vessel Service Act, it's a fine. All there is is a fine. You're not stopped. You can still have your travel to the west coast of the United States to Alaska. The problem is the fine. The fine is $798 per person uh, that you would be imposed. There's no legal stopping the ship going. The ship can go as long as it can get into the port and out. It can go. So cruise ships may want to just tack that on. They'll be, it, the fine goes against the cruise ship, not against the individuals. 
And so if the cruise ships really want to do this, and right now they're losing a billion dollars a month, the three big cruise lines, Carnival, Royal Caribbean, and Norwegian, they're paying out a billion dollars a month without passengers on board to keep the ships ready to go and on standby. They can do that. Uh, they may make a deal with the Canadian government. Uh, these cruise lines uh, lease islands in the Caribbean, uh, Nor Norwegian, Royal Caribbean, Carnival, Disney. They rent islands. Why not rent a small island off the coast of Canada? You crew it with the crew from the vessel. They stop there. They go ashore. You put some facilities ashore, completely isolated from the Canadian population, and give Canada some money for them to do that. They may be able to get around that. One of the options I've recommended is perhaps reflag the vessel back into American registry, put an American crew on board, much like the one vessel that in Hawaii. Norwegian has yeah. in Hawaii, and operate it on that coastal route. So I think there's some alternatives to it. The problem in the maritime industry, Peter, is, tr is truthfully, is both sides are entrenched. Uh, the, the side that wants to protect the laws and the par part that want to repeal it, they're on two polar opposites. And it's very hard to get them together to discuss this in a rational way for reform. <laughs> my thanks to Salvatore, to Paul Brady, and to Scott McCartney. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more interviews with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the other breaking travel news, and as I always say, there's a lot of it, just log on to petergreenberg.com. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.